1: Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 499 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Very excited to have Daniel Pink back on the podcast today. Uh, We are going to talk about regrets, and I don't know if they have any regrets, but uh, wow, it's fascinating. We also get into his writing habits. How he was a speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore, and why people seem to be floundering with negative emotions. I touch on this in a number of interviews lately. It's just something I keep seeing. Uh, Dan is just a great thinker. And uh, well, we'll tell you more about him in a minute. Also, for those of you who are regular listeners of the podcast, this is the final week with the old format. Now, it's the same show. We're just changing up the music, you know, that helping you lead like never before. Yeah, this is the last episode we're going to use it. I thought 499 episodes into it. By the time we hit episode 500, we'll have some new music with the show. So that starts on the next episode. I know we're going to divide the audience now between people who liked it the old way, people who liked the new way, but you're going to find out in episode 500. I'm actually excited for the change. This episode is brought to you by the Art of Leadership Academy. And by Pro Media Fire, you can go to the preachingworkshop.com. For those of you who are preachers, I've got a free preaching workshop. Coming up, where you'll learn to preach more relevant, engaging, and memorable sermons. It's free. Go to preachingworkshop.com to register for free today. And by Pro Media Fire, you can submit your application for their growth program by going to promediafire.com slash growth. Daniel H. Pink's books have helped readers and organizations around the world rethink how they live and operate. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, Drive to Sell is Human, and When. His books have sold millions of copies and have been translated into 42 languages. They've won multiple awards, and he lives in Washington, D.C. I think you'll love our conversation today. Hey, uh, pastors, if you are preaching regularly or semi-regularly, I am hosting a free preaching workshop that will help you preach more engaging, relevant, and memorable sermons. This one's free. It's part of what I'm doing in the Art of Leadership Academy. It's a free preaching workshop. It's just one hour on two days, June 20th and June 21st. It's live and it covers a few of the tried and true strategies for preaching better sermons. On one of the days, I'm going to show you how to craft a clear and compelling bottom line that your audience will remember for weeks, if not for years. I've had people using this formula come back to me a decade later and go, remember when you said, well, what, what do you need to do to get people to remember what you said for a decade? I'll show you exactly how to do it. And then For those of you who use notes when you speak, I want to show you in the second day how to deliver a talk without using notes. And there's a lot more. So you can learn this the hard way, or you could jump onto the free preaching workshop. The registration will get you free access to everything in the workshop, including the two live sessions, resources to support the application of the teaching I'm giving you, and a private Facebook group where you can meet and grow with other pastors. So Register today. Here's how you do it. Go to preachingworkshop.com, preachingworkshop.com, and I'll see you later on in June inside that. And then um, thank you to our partnership at ProMedia Fire. So question for you. Do you believe there is a first mover advantage? I do. Well, early adopters are always a step ahead. People ask me all the time. It's like, Carrie, how did you get 20, almost 22 and a half million downloads on the podcast? It's like, well, I started a few years ago, right? So early adopters are always a step ahead. And that's why you want to be aware of hybrid tech for online outreach. Now, Pro Media Fire is working on hybrid tech with one goal for you, creating growth on autopilot. This hybrid technology for online growth does a few things. First, it increases your online engagement. Second, it actually saves you and your team time and money. And third, it provides you with a steady stream of online and in-person visitors. So plain and simple. It's powered by the strategy of humans, but faster in driving growth than just hiring a physical team member. The new hybrid technology is available through the growth program. It's an invite-only cohort. Pro Media Fire is opening up a cohort for larger organizations in addition to small and mid-size. So small and large organizations are welcome to apply. Submit your application for the growth program today at ProMediaFire.com growth. That's ProMediaFire.com growth. And now, my conversation about regrets and so much more with Dan Pink. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you.
0: Kerry, thanks for having me back.
1: So I'd love to start here. Um, We're just chatting very briefly. You said writing doesn't get any easier. Launching books doesn't get any easier. This is your seventh book. What are your writing habits and how have they changed over the years?
0: Hmm. Okay, so I mean, um, I I think that the way that, I'll take the first part, the the second part first. I I think they've changed over the years and that they've become much more systematic. Uh, I've become much more methodical. and so now, and it, it took a while, I think probably after my first book to figure this out, um, is that what I what, uh, what I do when I'm writing a book, uh, when I'm in the writing mode of a book, or even in the writing mode of a long article, is that I carve out the morning to do that. And so I come into my office, I give myself a quota of words that I have to hit, and I don't do anything until I hit that number. So I don't open up my email I don't bring my phone with me into the office. I don't do anything else until I hit that number. Once I hit that number, I am exonerated. I'm free to do whatever I need to do that day. But until I hit that number, I am not. And then I do it the next day. And then I do it the next day. And then you get the idea. So, I get it. So, I'm pretty I'm pretty methodical. I if I sat around and waited to be inspired, I would never have written anything. Um, I find that I get inspired when I sit down and do the work. So I, I've said this before to a couple other interviewers. I, I really look at writing almost like like bricklaying. You come in, you lay some bricks because that's your job. You lay the bricks. You come in the next day, you lay some more bricks. Then you go look and say, okay, is everything straight? Is everything even? Oh nope, got to remove that one. You know, and so you just come in and you do your job every single day.
1: So what is your word count? I'm curious. I guess it might vary Depends. on a book versus an article. Yeah. It but varies based on where
0: or? I am in a project or something like that. I actually have a yeah. very, uh, for, for for some people, I have a, I'm have a very slow writer. Uh, and, um, and when I write a book or write an article, the whole reason that I'm writing the book or article is that I'm figuring it out as I'm writing. So if you ask me to write something about something I already know or something I've already figured out, then I can do that pretty quickly. But- Typically, with a, with, a, with a book, I have a vague sense of what I want to say, but I don't know fully. And I'm trying to discover that. And so it takes a long time. So to answer your question more directly, it varies. Sometimes it's 500, sometimes it's 800. It's very rarely over 1,000. It's never over 1,000.
1: See, this is fascinating because I think people who don't write for a living would go like 1,000 words. You can whip that off in a half hour, which on one level is true or an hour but not good words, right? So talk about They talk don't even the have value. to be good
0: words. I mean, I don't. Kimmy, can, can you? Uh, I mean, here's the thing. I can't. I can't whip out a thousand words, um, in an hour, um, that says anything meaningful that helps me figure out what I want to say. No way.
1: A fifteen hundred word blog post these days will probably take me, and blogs are almost like mosquitoes. They come and go, right? but a 1500 word blog post might take me 3 or 4 hours now whereas i think when i was less disciplined it took less time why mornings dan what what is it about mornings that made you incorporate that as your discipline
0: well i mean part of it is is, is that uh p- part of it also was a, i wrote a book about timing that that actually um that, that show that we perform differently at different times of day. And for most of us, myself included, we're more vigilant early in the day rather than later in the day. We're less prone to falling prey to distractions. And so for me, that's that's a big reason that I do it in the morning. Also, just, you know, I think there's something to be said, not in every single case, but in many cases for doing the most important thing first. And when I'm writing a book, that's easily the most important thing.
1: Yeah, you were a speechwriter. Uh, I, I I didn't know that until just recently. But you worked in 100 Washington D.C. Yeah, a hundred yeah. years ago. You were. A, was that in the Clinton administration? Did you Did you write speeches for? Was it Robert Reich? Have I got that right?
0: I did that during the early days of the Clinton administration, and then in the middle days of the Clinton administration, I was the chief speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore.
1: Really? Okay. How? Talk to us about speechwriting. Um, what what are, what are it, the disciplines, rhythms? And yeah, like just take us into uh, that it's world. It's interesting
0: because it's it's different from it's very different from what I do now because that's much yeah. more. Um, you know, in those days I could, you know, in those days I can, you know, I could write a thousand words in an hour. It's um it's it's a, I mean it's a very interesting job. Uh, I was very lucky to have it. I was glad to be able to have some good bosses and be able to sort of mod- modestly serve my country a tiny little bit. The um, um, it's, um, it's a very, very fast paced and very demanding job. Um, it's not like, you know, it's not like what I do now with books. It's like, okay, let me, let me do seven drafts and let me read it out loud and let me have my wife read it out loud to me. You know, it's more like, okay, you got to bang this out right now. And, you know, you rip it out of your printer and hand it off and just pray that things don't go tor- terribly South on you. So it's, um, but it, it's, you know, it's, a uh, It's a pretty, it's a pretty cool, fun, interesting, lively job to have when you're, I was quite young when I did it. Um, and so it's a fun job to have in that situation. It's not for me. I, I I went into, I went in, sort of took a circuitous route in that I I thought that early in my life that I wanted to work in politics. And then once I started working in politics, I decided that I didn't want to work in politics. (laughs) So (laughs) what changed your mind? Um, you know, this is, again, this is a long time ago. I, I felt like the, um, I felt like the, it was, it was so incredibly difficult to get things done. I felt like, like a lot of, like so much of what we were doing was just jockeying for short term advantage. Um, and, um, you know, the, so that was part of it. The other thing was, is that over time I discovered that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, myself, and one of the things about speech writing is you're not writing your you're not writing for yourself. You're not writing what you think. Mm. You are you are that's not your job. Uh, your job is to give voice to somebody else. And my, a concern that I had was that if I got too good at that, if I spent t- not too good at it, but if I spent too much time doing that, I would start to lose like what did I think um, mm. and. And the other thing that, the and and so, so, but it took me a while. It took me into my, you know, late 20s, early 30s to realize that when I grew up, I wanted to become a writer, that I didn't want to work in politics, that I wanted to do my own thing, um, and that, that's fine.
1: Yeah, it's funny, you know, you would almost think that it was speech writing for the vice president of the United States that might require 400 words a day, and yet you're banging out a thousand easily. words in an hour. Yeah. Like, like you, you would think, okay, this is the vice president of the United States. We have to take weeks to formulate this message. And yeah, how you, old
0: were you? Yeah. You would be wrong about that. <laughs> now there's certain kind, You, there would be certain, so, so that's, so let me disabuse you of that right now, Carrie. Uh-huh. Do you not think that the people who are working in the White House are sitting around in smoking jackets and puffing, you know, uh, uh, pipes and, and, and. Thinking great thoughts and whispering them in the ears of the powerful. Uh, it is much more akin to a um, an emergency room where you're mm-hmm. just stitching up bodies and hoping they don't die on your watch. Wow. That's 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 more of the that's more of the atmosphere.
1: Yeah, and you were young. How old were you when you were writing speeches? Because this is something I've seen. There's a lot of young, like a lot of the um, people around powerful. Politicians in Washington and Ottawa are extremely young. How how young were you?
0: Um, I I mean, I started doing this stuff in my twenties. Yeah, you know, um, I was in my early thirties when I worked for the vice president.
1: And and why do you think so many young people end up there? Like that that's because I Uh, I mean because
0: because because they're incredibly demanding jobs. You have to work all the time. Um, and if you, you know, and someone at someone my age or, or, or when I was younger and I had kids, I didn't want to work all the time on that kind of thing. I mean, you're, you're, you're working all the time. You have to have a hundred percent commitment. I I think that's perfectly fine. I'm not complaining about that. I think that's completely legitimate. You have to be all in, you have to want to work all the time and be willing to work all the time and be willing to work demanding ruling hours for very low pay. And that's a perfect recipe for people who are who are young. um one you know another you know I ended up getting out when, you know, around the time that my wife and I had our first kid, I realized pretty quickly that being a parent and having that kind of demanding job wasn't sustainable for the kind of life that we wanted to live.
1: Another thing that has got me interested. I asked Susan Kane about this recently, but you, Susan. And Adam Grant and Malcolm Gladwell have formed the Next Big Idea Club, which is great. And it it really came on my radar more recently when you nominated At Your Best, the group nominated At Your Best as one of the books to watch in the fall, which was a huge honor. And um, I'm curious, you know, you have some pretty esteemed colleagues in that group, all all of whom are very different. What are you learning from other writers like Adam, Malcolm, and Susan? Um, I'm curious what your take is on that.
0: Oh, I learned so much. I learned how they approach their work. Uh, but I mean, this is true not only of those three who are terrific, um, writers and, and first-rate human beings, all three of them. I mean, they're just love, all three are just lovely, wonderful human beings beyond being talented writers. Um, so, you know, so, so I learned from them on, on just how to be a good person. Um, I think that, you know, they, they have, they have very, they have somewhat different approaches and, for me, it's like, you know, when I read, like, I read Susan's recent book and I found it really compelling and really interesting. Yeah. And I learned something from that. Uh, I think that what Malcolm is doing um, in audio is fascinating. And I've learned a lot about that, about storytelling in different forms and about being a little bit agnostic, uh, being more agnostic at least about what medium you convey things in. Uh, I'm in awe of Adam's ability to crank stuff out. The guy is just incredibly productive. Yeah. Uh, the the amount of stuff that he produces is just breathtaking. Um and so so you know all kinds of stuff. But it's not only that. I mean I I learn from every writer I read. I learn from you. I learn from I learn from everybody who's whose book I whose book I read. I think that you know and I think that that's a healthy way to approach it. Um not only as a writer but just as a as a as a human being. I, I don't think that anybody should take any of my books and say, "Up, oh, I have figured out the plan. This is the gospel. Uh, I think what you do is you, is you read and you hear and you listen and you, you absorb and you take pieces from many, many sources and fashion it into something that is uniquely your point of view and your perspective and your approach to life.
1: Yeah, that's a challenge, I think, for a lot of people. And we have a lot of content uh, creators, whether that's preachers, writers, podcasters who, are, who listen to this podcast. And I think that's always one of the challenges I've found for myself as a communicator. Sometimes if I over listen to or over read a certain person, I end up almost becoming a mimic, you know, Interesting. How, how, do yeah, you guard, yeah. Yeah, how do you figure that out? What is your filter for like, hey, I can learn from Malcolm Gladwell, but this is what Dan does. Like uh, what, what, what does that filter? I mean, I, I
0: think that I, it's a great question. It's, it's interesting. I, you know, I think that when, that, when you're, when, when, when one is starting out as a writer, there is room for mimicry, there is room right. for saying, you know, t- for doing that. But I think that, um, that, that period of mimicry should end fairly quickly. And I think that inevitably you begin to adjust to your own way of thinking and expressing, um, and, you, and so, so I think that the, 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 way to avoid that comes from, I guess, from two ways. One is just pure experience, but the other one is reading widely, um, yeah. not just reading one person and actually carry not just even reading one genre, but reading widely across multiple disciplines, across multiple forms, um, and increasingly now different kinds of media. So mm. listening to stuff, um, And, you know, like, you know, podcasts like you're doing or watching things and just being exposed to different kinds of media, different forms of storytelling, different types of ideas, different disciplines from which those ideas emerge. And, um, and I I think that that is a, is a good antidote to, um, mimicry. The other thing that's an antidote to mimicry is doing the work. You know, sometimes you, sometimes one reverts to mimicry when, when one hasn't done the work and is feeling lazy, but if you show up and do the work you're less likely to mimic.
1: That's a really good point.
0: I mean, I hate to sound like a hard, but I actually am in this regard. I mean, you know, the, 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 the solution to most issues, I think as for writers is to shut up and get back to work. <laughs> what was it? Somebody said, I say that, to, I say that to my, I say that to myself multiple times a week. Uh huh.
1: Shut up, get back to work. Mm-hmm. No, somebody said uh, that the opposite of writer, the cure for writer's block is writing. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that really resonates. If you feel blocked, just just keep writing. What are some sources? Um, and I want to get into your new book because uh, there's all a lot there. But before we do, what what are some sources then, as you're reading widely, as you're listening to different kinds of media? Are there any that pop to mind as like, wow, I'm so glad I read this, or I'm so glad I'm exploring this area.
0: Uh, in terms of topics or?
1: Yeah, it could be topics or authors or uh, anything that you've seen that really you were you were glad you did, so to speak. For example, I'm a pastor oh, by training, I'm- and I listen to business podcasts incessantly yeah. and other leadership podcasts, yeah. and I think I'm a better leader as a result.
0: Yeah, yeah I'm sure. I'm sure. Um I tend to listen to and read a fair amount of science, uh, both, uh, you know, uh, not so much in the realm of like, um, uh, physics and, and astronomy, but very much in the realm of, of certainly, um, social science, uh, you know, social psychology, economics, linguistics, but also biological sciences. So I find that I read a fair amount of science just because I'm, you know, I'm sort of looking for first principles i'm looking for what's going on underneath underneath the hood but i think it's also important to read good fiction uh not even and i don't mean good i don't mean sort of high high uh, highfalutin fiction but just like good good fiction because good fiction teaches you how to tell a story it teaches you um you know uh, what's you know it's it's also a study in behavior because you have a character who is trying to achieve something and has obstacles in the way in almost every piece of you know in almost every piece of of fiction. Uh, I tend to like um, I still think I mean I'm old but I think that the the daily newspaper, especially newspapers like The New York Times and The Washington Post and The Wall Street Journal, are among the best value you can have in reading. Um, you know for a couple of bucks you have incredible some really really great writing, incredible breadth of what what it covers. And so you know I'm somebody who still reads a print newspaper and I read all the sections. I mean, I, I certainly I, you know I write about business, and so I read the business section. I read the art section. Hmm. I read the sports section. and so you know, I just I think it's important to be to be pretty eclectic about what you um about what you read.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned science because now when I go back over your books, I'm like, yeah, you have like you're not writing in the field of science. it's more social science than anything. But I see that kind of scientific approach show up in your writing. It's very methodical. It's very researched. It's very detailed. When, um, which we did an interview when that came out and really influenced some of my thinking for At Your Best, Uh, you know, that was a highly researched book. And I think that adds a lot of credibility uh, to it. So let's talk about regrets. You got a brand new book, uh, which I really enjoyed called The Power of Regret. For those of you who are watching this via YouTube, uh, how looking backward moves us forward. And I'm glad you went there. So people ask me, because I get interviewed from time to time, do you have any regrets? And I know what you're supposed to say, Dan, but I don't <laughs> say that. I don't say that. I say, actually, Good, I have I have a lot of regrets. I mean, where do you want to start? And one of the great regrets was my 30s. And that was a, a period of really fast growth in our church at the time. I was leading a church in those mm-hmm. days. And but what I sacrificed, what I sacrificed was my health and my family. And it led me to burnout mm-hmm. at 41. And, you know, the last 15 mm-hmm. years of my life have been an unraveling of that and a rebuilding from the foundation. Um, but but when I tell people I have regrets, it's like they look at me as though I have three heads. So <laughs> mm-hmm. why is it that so many of us are afraid to admit that we have regrets?
0: Um, because we don't realize how universal regret is. Mm-hmm. Um, regret is one of the most universal emotions a human being's experience it is ubiquitous it is arguably the most common negative emotion that we experience um and i think that's one so so we think that when we've experienced regret that we're somehow different and we're not it's the most normal emotion one of the most normal emotions that we have uh, the second thing is no one's taught us how to deal with it hmm. um and i think that um so we're inclined because it feels bad we're inclined to try to ignore it and when that doesn't work we end up wallowing in it uh, and so we need the coping tools to be able to respond to it effectively. Um, and yeah, I think those are the, I think those are the main reasons. I mean, it, what I, what I found though, it's interesting you say that, because what I found is that a lot of times when I talk about my regrets or when I mentioned this, and one reason I got into this topic is that people actually had a different response. They actually want it, you know, they, if you if you introduce one of your regrets, they tend to off, often will offer one of theirs. That is, I think this is a conversation that people want to have. Oh, that's good that to um, that 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 we w- that that we want that that people actually appreciate the taboo being being removed. And one of the things I'm trying to do with this book is normalize regrets because. They're normal. Um, you know, ev- everybody, every, every, everybody has them. And I think that once, once you say that to people, there's a little bit of a sense of relief. Oh my God, I'm not the only one. And I think one of the big problems here, especially with younger people with negative emotions in general is that when they feel a negative emotion, they think there's something wrong with them because they say, Oh, I feel crappy. I'm doing something wrong. Uh, and, and let me look around. Oh my God, everybody else is perfect. I am deeply flawed. And that, that's what's dangerous, especially when we don't give people, so it's a, when we don't give people the tools to respond to that, the tools to cope with that.
1: What are some of your regrets when you look back on your life?
0: I have a lot of regrets. I mean, you know, um, in what domain of life or what kind of regrets? I got a whole menu of well, them. Well, let's want. talk
1: uh, professionally and personally. What's a professional regret? What's a personal regret?
0: Yeah. I mean, one professional regret, it's not a huge, it's not, I have a lot of professional regrets, but it's, it's not a huge professional regret, but it's one that I've been thinking about is, um, is that I never had a mentor. Um, and I kind of regret that now. Um, and what's weird is that it's, it's a, the reasons are a mix. Part of it is, is that like, I sort of never knew that that was a thing, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that. I kind of sort of, but you know, I wasn't really like aware that that was a thing and that was something that was valuable. The second part is that I think part of it was that I felt like at some level, I didn't need one, that I had it all figured out, that why would I want something like that? I got it all down. And so, and, and when I see people who have had mentors, who have had who have helped them, who have helped guide them, who have helped them, you know, figure out how to navigate terrain, um, I sort of regret not having that for myself. I really have like if you say to me who is your mentor, I would say nobody. Hmm. Um, you know, and and it's not like I was neglected. It's not like I was a oh wow, I look so different from the being a straight white male born in America. I'm so different from the people who could have been mentors. I mean, that, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't that you know yeah. it was it was that I didn't know and I didn't care and I kind of missed the boat. Like so much of it is on me. Yeah. So that's one professional regret. Wow.
1: Yeah, I missed a mentor or two along the way as well. What about a personal regret when you look back on your personal life?
0: Um, I have a lot of regrets from earlier in my life about kindness. Mm. And it's a weird kind of thing, Carrie. in that when I, you know, for this book, I, I collected a lot of regrets. And and there were, there were regrets that are that regrets ultimately about kindness that have to do with bullying. You know, so moral regrets, people doing the wrong thing by bullying. And my regret is almost like a moral regret by inaction. And what I mean by that is that there were many situations in my life, especially when I was younger, where I was never a bully, mm. and where I would, but I would be in situations where someone was being, especially excluded. Someone was being excluded. Someone was being left out. Someone was not being treated right. And here's the thing. It's not like I can't say I didn't see it. I saw it. It's not like saying, it's not like I can say, oh, um, I didn't know it was wrong. I knew it was wrong and I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And that bugs me. And so, again, so the real question then is less of like, what's my regret? But what do I, what do, I do with it? And and I think it's very instructive here. So at, at a top level, what regrets do is they clarify what we value and they teach us how to do better. So for me, if I have this regret that has lingered for 30 years, um, and that's a deeper regret than, than not having a mentor mm. for me, the kindness regrets. If I have a regret that has, that, that has lingered for 30 years, that's telling me something. It's a signal. It's telling me what I value. It's telling me that I might not know at a conscious level, but what it seems to be manifest as day is that I value kindness and that I feel like crap when I don't show kindness. And when you start thinking about that, reflecting on that, what I realize is that a lot of the people I admire, what do I admire about them? I admire their mm. kindness. And so then, then it's like, okay, what are you going to do about it then? All right, what's the lesson you're going to learn? And my lesson that's going to learn that I learn is you've got to be kinder and, and kinder in a particular way because it's a, it's a particular behavior that bugs me, which was like letting people be left out. And so one of the things, this is not a big deal. I don't want to suggest a massive personal transformation or I don't want you to, you know, send a, um, you know, a text message to the Pope nominating me for sainthood. But the, what I, what I've, one of the things that my wife can attest to this: if I'm in a social gathering, and let's say there's a, there are clumps of people talking, and I see someone who is marooned, isn't talking to anybody, I will go over to that person and talk to them. What's more, I will I will or more likely, I will kind of bring them into. If I'm in a particular scrum of people, I will open up the circle and bring that person mm. in. Now, it's a small gesture. But it's a gesture that I do, I think, fairly routinely and that I do as a consequence of feeling so bad and feeling so regretful about what I didn't do earlier in my life.
1: Well, you raise this really interesting point or hint at it that um, we live in this cultural moment where we are pretty fragile. And to admit you have regrets is almost like a character flaw or, or I don't know what you would call it. And you open the book with a couple of fascinating stories, Dumb Tattoos. And then, if I've got the pronunciation right, Edith Piaf, is that it? The French musician mm-hmm. who became iconic for her song, No Regrets, but lived a terribly regretful life. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, tell us the story of Edith and uh, some Dumb Tattoo stories, because I think they encapsulated a lot of what is frustrating. I think about this, this moment that we're in where we don't admit our weaknesses.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, I I use the, the, the the folks with tattoos as, as a way uh, I have nothing against, I mean, the people who I interviewed who had tattoos were lovely, were lovely people. They had tattoos that say no regrets. I just use that as an example of, you know, your commitment to a particular belief. So let's go back to politics. Um, you know, you can put a sign in your yard saying, you know, um, Garcia for city council. And, you know, that's a, that's a Mm. commitment and you can put a bumper sticker on your car saying, you know, Romney for president and, you know, that's a commitment and, you know, you can, you can make a campaign contribution. That's a, that's a commitment, but to ink something permanently on your body is a big commitment. And so there are a lot of people out there with, with tattoos that say no regrets. And I find that just kind of fascinating. Like that's the depth of belief, but at some level, I think people are trying to convince themselves Um, and and that they, they take that extreme action because they have questions about whether they actually believe that. And so, so I have people with no regrets tattoos, but then of course I have a guy who got a no regrets tattoo and then regretted it and had it removed. So, you know, again, so I'm just using that as an example of the commitment to this belief. Now, Edith Piaf is another, is another example of how this philosophy has penetrated our cultural consciousness. She was a French singer she, she started singing this song, um, you know, No, I Regret Nothing, Nothing at All, uh, Je Ne Regret Rien, and, and, um, and it became an anthem. It became one of the most popular songs in France. You, you hear it on North American advertising, television advertising now. Um, the, the, the weird thing is, is that Edith Piaf led a miserable life. Um, she was addicted to morphine. She was addicted to alcohol. She had a kid when she was 17 who she gave up, who later died. She had, um, she saddled one husband with massive amounts of debt. Uh, one of her other, one of her lovers died. Um, and, you know, when you talk to her on her deathbed and we have, we have contemporaneous accounts of what it was like when she died and she died at age 47, uh, because of the, because of the way that her, she treated her body and mind. She didn't say as she was drawing her final breaths at at the preposterously young age of 47 oh i regret nothing i regret nothing at all she said the opposite she said every damn thing in this life you do you have to pay for and and so this is a person who who had regrets And and the point of all this is that you know to try to what i'm trying to do is this this no regrets philosophy is a little bit of a fog machine it's obscuring the reality and the reality is that everybody has regrets Everybody has regrets. The only people who don't have regrets, as I've said many times, are five-year-olds, people with brain damage, and sociopaths. The rest of us have regrets. Um, and it doesn't feel good. And the, But the fact that this emotion that doesn't feel good is so ubiquitous teaches us something or it hints at something. It says this must be valuable in some way. It must be useful in some way. And when you go to the research, you find out, well... If we reckon with our regrets properly, we can become better negotiators. If we reckon with our regrets properly, we can become better problem solvers. If we reckon with our regrets properly, we can become better strategists, better parents, find more meaning in life. And, and, um, and, and so this regret is part of our cognitive machinery. And with some very simple techniques, we can use it to live better and work smarter.
1: One of the challenges I've had over the years, and I don't do as many funerals anymore. I haven't been in um, you know, leadership at a church for about seven years. Still go, still attend, still help, but not in leadership. But I did a lot of funerals over the years. And I watched this because I started in the 90s and went to about 2015 where I was the lead pastor of a church. And I saw the way we talked about death and the way we talked about people changing. And there's a term in, in theology where they talk about hagiographies. Hey, in other words, it's not actually a biography. It's almost right, like we made this right. person into a saint. Right. And it seems to be the flavor of the month, even if someone left led, like at Edith Piaf, a very tragic life, that what we say about a person when they die is, this was the kindest person in human history. So amazing. Never heard a flea. Um, so generous, so compassionate, and part of me—it's my personality—is sitting there going, "Could someone just tell the truth? Like, what is at stake when we don't tell the truth about ourselves or our stories?"
0: Um, well, I mean, when we don't tell the when we don't tell the truth about ourselves, we're missing the opportunity to develop into our best selves and contribute at our highest level. That's the most important thing. That, that not being, that, that not telling the truth about yourself is a way to thwart growth and learning, uh, and, and contribution. That, that most serious learning, most serious growth and a huge amount of, of your ability to contribute and to achieve and to contribute to the world hinges on at least a modicum of self awareness. Um, and, you know, there's also, you know, there should be a little bit of self delusion in there too. A little bit of sprinkle of self delusion can be quite helpful, but, but self awareness, self awareness, I think is self awareness. I think is critical. Um, you know, I'm not. It's an interesting question about you know what do we say at what do we say at at, at funerals? Um, I I think that even if people are mouthing the words of this person was kind, this person was generous, that astute listeners while they hear the lyrics, they can also hear the melody, and the melody doesn't sound like that. Uh, I think we know when it's an authentic expression. Um, David Brooks, the New York times writer has a really nice way of putting this. He talks about various virtues in life and he talks about our resume virtues. Hell, I was the CEO of this company and won this award or, or, or our, um, or our, uh, funeral virtues, um, resume virtues and funeral virtues and funeral virtues are what did people say at us? So, 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 so when we go to, when, when you were, when you presided over funerals, you didn't read somebody's resume. You didn't say, oh, wow, we're going to miss we're gonna miss uh Maria, you know, in her she increased sales in her division by 13% over in you know, the last fiscal year. I mean, that's not you know, that's not what we say about people at their at their funerals. We say about how what how they how they touched us. And if we have to confect that, I think at some level everybody knows.
1: You know, I I, I owe a, a huge debt in the uh about a year or two after I started, there was a guy named Walter who was well into his seventies. I'm like thirty-one, thirty-two. And after I finished a funeral, he pulled me aside and he just said, Carrie, I don't recognize the man you just buried. And I'm like, what do you mean? That's fascinating. And he goes, he just wasn't that nice. He was a blankety blank. And I'm like, okay, well, thank you. And so what I try to do is I try to get the real story from the family. And then if there is pain, there's almost always pain. I mean, once in a while, you really meet a saint, right? But there's always pain or nuance or an estranged daughter or a marriage that didn't work out. And so what I'll try to do is I'll try to nuance or shade. That's not a time to throw shade on anybody who just died. That's not the moment. But I think I want to say at least a sentence, if not a paragraph, to acknowledge that this was complex and that there are a variety of emotions. Yes. And, you know, everyone leaves a legacy of some good and some things that they wish they could do over. And that seems to have addressed it, particularly where the pain is deep or it's almost like a wedding sometimes where this part of the family can't talk to that part of the family and you end up being the referee that also happens at funerals and i think just telling the truth and and some of this dan really struck me you know having my background in in christian theology as theological you know if you you can see in our culture that god was more at the center and i don't mean morally i just meant more people confess some kind of religious faith a hundred years ago than they do today. And so the theological framework that our culture had to uh, talk about things like sin and forgiveness and reconciliation, we've we've lost that. And I wonder if, you know, this ambiguity we have around regrets, feeling them but not being able to articulate them, is somehow bordering on a theological crisis with the vacuum that was left as the church kind of... (laughs) Sometimes self-inflicted wounds uh, rode off into the sunset uh, from a lot of mainstream culture.
0: I, I think hmm. that there's something to that. I really do. And I, I'm not sure it's purely theological. What I okay. well, it's sort of theological. I think there's something to that, and, and here's what I mean by that. I I I, I, I really do. Um, I think that religious traditions, um, and it's and not only, and, and not only. Um, uh christianity not only protestantism and not only christianity but a whole variety of religious traditions are not bad at helping people contend with negative emotions um i, I think that it's not so much the it, it's 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 partly theological but i think the real juice mm-hmm. is in the practice all right not so much in the underlying uh idea or the 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 the, the story from whatever the sacred text is, but from the practice itself. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Hmm. So take Catholicism, confession, repentance. That's a way to deal with negative emotion, right? Um, it, it's a way to deal with uh, certain kinds of regret. When I established, when I started collecting regrets from around the world, it was in some ways an online confessional, all right? I'm not a priest. I have no aspiration to be a priest, but at some level, it was operating like that. Okay, so 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 take that. Judaism has a day in the calendar, Mm -hmm. the day of atonement, where you take they carve out a day, an entire day in the year. And your day in the year is to reflect and atone for your sins. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a practice, even things that are religion adjacent, like AA, which has a religious Mm. connection to it. It has a set of processes, literally a set of steps. And among those steps are acknowledging what you did wrong, going to the person who you wronged face-to-face and making amends. And so I think that religious traditions give people the tools, the processes to deal with these negative emotions. It's why it's why you presided over funerals. Every religious tradition has a mechanism, a way, a set of rituals and practices to deal with grief. Every single religious tradition has that. Secular society doesn't have that all the time. All right. And so why? Because religious traditions help us make sense of negative emotions. They give us ways to cope with negative emotions. And I think that secular society hasn't done a very good job of that. That is why people are That Many people are floundering. They're floundering because they feel a negative emotion. They don't know what to do with it. They don't have a process. They don't have a system. They don't have a set of techniques. And worse, they often don't have a community to help them with that. And that's, I think, what faith traditions do.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I hear all the time, particularly in the last decade of people who are like, yeah, there's no funeral. And we're just gonna do a private burial or whatever. And I'm like, ooh, okay, first of all, I understand why that happens, but secondly, there's a community that suffered loss here. And I'm just wondering how we grieve it.
0: Do I agree, agree with that. I, I I I I agree with that. Um, you know, I, I do. I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that you will not find any faith tradition anywhere that right. doesn't have a set of rituals, that doesn't have actually a a text or an incantation of sorts that helps people process a death, learn how to grieve. Um, and you know, um, make sense of this loss.
1: That ashes to ashes, dust to dust line that I've used, uh, nobody wrote, I don't know who wrote that. It's been around for centuries. That is such a moment when you're standing by a graveside or you're in a chapel or a church and saying goodbye and the body is present or the ashes are present. That's just sobering. It sends chills up my spine. And I think it's therapeutic. Yeah. I think it's therapeutic.
0: And it's therapeutic for the entire community too, because I think you're right. the community has the community has um, the community has suffered a loss, and the community needs some um, sense making.
1: Yeah, I, I've told this story before. I don't think I've told it on the podcast, but I remember as a young pastor hearing about the stories and the churches were very small at the time. so you know everybody's story. And there were a couple of boys, teenagers who in the 1970s and I started in the '90s, 20 years later, went out on the lake, we have a big lake near where I live, they were canoeing in the spring and they never came back. That was it. Bodies were never found. And so the family didn't do a funeral because they kept expecting the bodies to be discovered. And you wait a month and then a season and then, well, maybe next spring. They were never found. So two decades later, this kid from Toronto shows up on the scene. And I remember walking with some of the dads who are now in their 70s. You know, maybe it was 30 years prior to me getting there. And I remember asking one, shall we have a funeral? And there was no body present. But, but decades later, we did a little private ceremony. And you could see the relief in yeah. people. And at the end of your book, you talk about, and I want to get the, the phrase right, you talk about what to do with your regrets. And you, here it is, you talk about disclosing the regret. And when I read that Mm -hmm. section, Dan, you know, there's this passage in the end of the New Testament that says, confess your sins to each other. So full confession, most Protestant evangelical Christians never do that. It is a thing between you (laughs) and God. It's you and God. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm not Mm going to tell you my sin. Maybe I'll get outed one day if I really sin big, but I'm not telling you my sin. And I think it's killing us. I think this idea, can you talk about the power of disclosing your regrets?
0: sure uh there's there are multiple benefits to it uh one of them is that disclosure is an unburdening mm. so it's sort of like it, it 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 and and i think that in the same way that your story of that community that finally had a funeral after two decades it's an unburdening mm. you've been carrying something around and you put it down you take it off of your back you release yourself so it's an unburdening the second thing that 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 disclo- disclosure itself does is that it builds affinity we think that when we disclose our mistakes, when we when we follow that line of scripture and confess our sins to each other, we fear about we fear doing that because we think people will think less of us. When, in fact, we have 30 years of science telling us that people generally think more of us for doing that. So um, so that 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 incantation is actually, you know, that incantation toward the end of the New Testament is actually verified by a lot of recent science. Mm. Now, um, so that, so that's something that disclosure does. Now, the other thing that I think is even more important is this, that emotions by their very nature are abstract. They're blobby. They're amorphous. That's what makes positive emotions feel good. It's what makes negative emotions feel bad. So when we talk about our negative emotions, When we write about our negative emotions, particularly our most common negative emotion of regret, what do we do? We convert that blobby sensation into concrete words. Some, those concrete words are less fearsome. So we defang that regret and that, and the fact that it's concrete. I'm mixing metaphors here. I know the fact that it's concrete allows us to begin making sense of it. And so that's an incredibly important part in draw in, in drawing lessons from our regret. We have to disclose it, convert it from abstract to concrete and make sense of it.
1: How did you, what was the inductive process of figuring out? Because this was, this was a new thought to me. I hadn't thought about, oh, disclosing your regrets. But as soon as I read it, first of all, I got the theological connection. And secondly, I'm like, wow, that just makes so much sense for all the reasons that you say. How did you arrive at that
0: well, I mean, I looked at the research, but I think my my hunch came from the fact that, you know, I, in this world regret survey, I collected we now have over 20,000 regrets from people all over the world. Uh 20,000 regrets from people in in 109 countries. And so, how did I do that? I I i had one mention in my newsletter and two tweets, and all of a sudden I had thousands and thousands of regrets. That suggests that people want to talk about it. That suggests that people do want to confess to other people. And what people were confessing, nobody was confessing murder. They were confessing, ah, oh, I really wish I had called my friend before, but then unfortunately she passed away. Ah, oh, I really regret that I stayed in this lackluster job instead of going out on my own. I really regret that I never asked that guy out on a date 20 years ago because I really, I really liked him and I wonder if my life could have been different. I really regret not saving money and being too, you know, not being frugal. Um, that's what, that's what they were saying, because I think people want to talk about that. And so I'm so, so, so start thinking about why so many people want to disclose and you start looking at the research on disclosure and it makes perfect sense.
1: I want to go to the world regret survey, but one more question on the research, because what you said, I think, uh, again, a lot of communicators listening to this people who talk publicly and there is at least in me still a fear, even though my head knows this is not true there is a fear or a worry in me that if I disclose too much and talk about my weaknesses too much, exactly what you hinted at would happen. People would think less of me. But the research says just the opposite. Can you talk us through that research? You
0: can go too far. There's there's no okay. question. There, I, okay, just to be fair, Gary, there's no question. You can go too far. You don't want to hear a laundry list of everything that I've done wrong in my yeah. life. uh uh-uh, uh-uh. Yeah. But I think that if I, again... This is going back to what institutions like religion or Alcoholics Anonymous do. They give us a process. They give us a set of steps, right? They give us a ritual. and, and And those things are powerful. So, you know, so if you're going up in front of people, don't tell them every bad thing that you did. My God, no, no one wants to hear that. But you can build affinity and gain credibility if you say something like, let me, let's say you're leading a team of people. Let me tell you about one regret that I have. You're honest about that. Let me tell you what lesson I learned from it. And let me tell you what I'm going to do about it. That's good leadership.
1: Yep. And that the science is people's respect for you goes up, not down, as opposed to, hey, I'm the guy who doesn't make mistakes. I'm bulletproof, right? Which is still a genre of leadership. Okay, well, let's talk about the world regret survey so you've hinted at how it got started but you poured through I think I've heard you say every single one of those regrets and
0: the first fifteen thousand at least yeah
1: first fifteen thousand so a little bit of homework after launch season is done but that's unbelievable uh tell us about more about what you learned about people's regrets
0: well um you know what I learned in reading through these regrets is that if we're trying to figure out what people regret, what matters less are the domains of life in which the regret occurs. This is a career regret. This is a financial regret. This is an education regret. This is a romance regret. And something deeper underlying. And what I found is that around the world, people seem to always have the same four regrets. They came up everywhere. Um, and we've talked about a few of them. But um, you know, these four regrets were the ones that were coming up over and over and over and over and over again.
1: Yeah, you had four core regrets and you divided them differently than other surveys. So you had done the research that Gallup and other organizations had done. And yeah, yeah, they do hit certain categories, but can you walk us through those four core regrets?
0: Sure. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. These are regrets about people who make small decisions early that have bad consequences later. I spent too much and saved too little. I didn't take care of my health. Boldness regrets. Uh, if only I'd taken the chance. These are people who regret not traveling, not starting a business, not asking somebody out on a date. A lot of those. Um, moral regrets. If only I'd done the right mm-hmm. thing. People, we talked a little bit about this. People who regret bullying and cheating. And then finally, connection regrets. If only I'd reached out. These are regrets about relationships, relationships that, that, that were intact or should have been intact, uh, that, that come apart usually in slow, drifting ways. Somebody wants to reach out. They say, oh, it's going to be really awkward if I reach out and the other side's not going to care. So they don't reach out and it gets even worse. And so, you know, over and over, it's so, you know, the, the four regrets are if only I'd done the work, if only I'd taken the chance, if only I'd done the right thing. And if only I'd reached out.
1: Yeah. You, the, the stories are pretty powerful in the book, the one that, and and you can read the pain even in a paragraph. When you, when you looked at that, whether it was cheating on a spouse or a partner or whether it was, um, I wish I'd studied harder because I really don't like my life or I'm in a financial mess right now, if only I had paid attention, if mm-hmm. only I had stopped spending earlier. Um, yeah, what are some of the stories that really moved your heart as you read?
0: Well, I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, most of them. So, you know, I have a woman who had a friend who... Childhood friend and this childhood, you know, they they grew up together. They were they were they were really good buddies. Um, they go off to university. They grow apart a little bit, but not so much that they're you know they're invited to each other's weddings and their families stay in touch. Uh, this one woman, Amy, she finds out her friend has pretty severe form of cancer, and she says, "Oh, I need to reach out, but it's going to be really awkward because she's going to think I'm reaching out only because she's sick." So she waits, and she says, "Okay, I really should reach out," and she says, "Oh no, it's going to be really awkward." Um, besides, she's not going to care anyway. And, um, and eventually she does reach out. And when she calls, she finds out that her friend had died that morning. So that's a big regret. And, and so what does Amy do with that regret? Amy uses that spear of regret, that negative feeling and says, I'm not going to do it this way anymore. And so what she does is she, she has unfortunately another friend who has a serious illness. And with this friend, she calls, she texts, she visits and that friend too sadly passed away, but. Amy doesn't have regrets about that one, um, and so I think it's a I think it's an interesting example of both connection regrets. If only I'd reached out, uh, and it's also a healthy way to process regret. You 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 don't ignore it. You don't wallow in it. You use it as a signal. It's telling me what I value, caring for my friends. It's instructing me on what to do. Reach out, and when you do that, you you feel better, and you actually reduce your subsequent regrets. Another
1: big finding in the research that really. Uh, caught my attention was you had this graph and said, when you're younger, you regret what you did, actions of commission, um, yeah. almost as much as things you didn't yeah. do. But as you get older, the the sins of commission keep dropping, the regrets of commission keep dropping, and the omission um, kind of rises a little bit. And I, I thought that really resonated with my experience. Uh, can you unpack that finding, Dan?
0: Well, you're exactly, I mean, you said it exactly right that, that as we age, we are much more likely to have regrets of inaction, things we didn't do than regrets of action. Now, why is that the case? Uh, I'm not sure, but, but I can guess one, one reason is that regrets of action are easier to address. So if I have hurt somebody, I can apologize. If I've cheated somebody, maybe I can make restitution. You can also take some of the psychological sting out of regrets by doing a downward counterfactual or what I, or what I call, and at least you can say, and I have these in the database of these now almost 20, more than 20,000 regrets. You, people say, oh, I, I regret marrying that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. You can find a silver lining in it. Um, with, with inaction regrets, it's harder to find a silver lining and it's harder to, you can't undo something that hasn't been done. <laughs> so, so they linger. They linger. What's more is that the two biggest categories of regret—boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance, and connection regrets, if only I'd reached out—those are almost all, not always, but but heav- heavily regrets mm-hmm. of inaction. Um, and so that's what really sticks with us: what what we didn't do. And I think what it suggests is that in general in life, not in every situation, in every realm, but in general in life, we should have a bias for action. That you know, um, and, and because because when we act. We learn, and when we act, we extinguish the what-if questions.
1: So walk us through, you talk about optimizing regrets. How do you optimize your regrets these days? Like what are some of the tangible differences five years into this project that you would say are present in your life now?
0: Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, when we optimize regrets, we have to think about, when we think about anticipating, anticipating regrets is generally healthy. That if we anticipate our regrets and try to avoid them, that's useful. Uh, The problem is we have to do it right. So sometimes we over-anticipate our regrets, and that can lead us to become risk-averse. That's a bad idea. Um, And other times we try to make sure that we minimize every single regret. We sort of maximize on minimization. And so uh, what we know from a whole pile of research is that that if you try to maximize every decision, you're going to be miserable. You know, I need to have uh, what should I have for lunch today? Well, I need to have the best hamburger in Washington, D.C. Oh, I have to have my roof fixed. I need the best roofer in the Washington metropolitan area, not the second best. Uh, and people who maximize are generally miserable. The opposite of maximizing is what's called satisficing, which is just doing making a good enough decision. And I think what the research tells us is that when we anticipate our regrets, we should maximize on decisions on these big four. Um, so if you think about 10 years from now, I'm not going to care what color car I bought last year. Uh, 10 years from now, I'm not going to care what I had for dinner tonight or whether I wore this shirt today or another shirt. Who cares? No one's going to – I'm not going to care. But I am going to care. I can make a pretty safe bet of things that I will care about. I will care if there's a friend who I meant to reach out to and I didn't get around to it. That will still bug me. Um, I will care if I do something morally wrong, that I cheat somebody or I'm unkind. I, I will care if I have a chance to take a sensible risk and I chicken out. Um, I, I, and, and so what we should be doing is maximizing on, on, on foundation and boldness and morality and connection and satisfying, i.e. chilling out on everything else.
1: Hmm. I have this little mantra I developed in the last decade. It's when I'm stuck. It's like five years from now, what will I wish I had done? And I find that tremendously clarifying. Dan, anything else on regret for leaders that you want to share before we wrap up today?
0: I mean, I think that the best thing that leaders can do is what we were talking, we were hinting at this earlier. You know, one of the, I think one of the best things leaders can do is this week, have a conversation about regret and you initiated it, you initiated it. So tell somebody about one of your regrets, but don't just leave it there. Tell somebody about one of your regrets, tell them what you learned from it and tell them what you're going to do about it. And I think that I could, that could create a cascade of people norm, you know, normalizing this utterly normal regret and using it as an engine for getting better. Hmm.
1: That's really good advice, you know, thinking about um, regretting my 30s and the impact that my work had on my kids. I feel like I've spent my 50s trying to redeem that and some of my 40s as well. And the good news <laughs> is I have a great relationship, a deepening relationship with my now adult children that I think we we all treasure, which is which is good. Dan is really, really powerful. Thank you so much. The book is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And I would love for you if you if you would just to share where people can connect with you online these days on social or web.
0: You can go to danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K dot com. Um all kinds of stuff there. Information about the books, a lot of free resources, videos, um, <laughs> unicorn rides, free popcorn, everything you would want. Dan, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Carrie.
1: Well, I'm glad we had this conversation. I do have regrets, and I think I'll probably end up with a few more. You know, I, I mean, I mean, this idea like, oh, I never make mistakes. You know, there's no new regrets. I just, I just don't buy that. So, anyway, if you want more from the conversation, and uh, you want to see more of what we talked about, or get a transcript of what we talked about. We've got those at the show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 499. And well, coming up, we've got a few episodes I'm very excited about. We've got Trip Crosby, Tom Rayner, Karen Gordon, Seth Godin is coming back to the podcast, Jeff Henderson, Stephen M. R. Covey, Jackie Hill Perry. And uh, thanks to ProMedia Fire. Submit your application for their growth program by going to promediafire.com slash growth. So, I want to share some exciting news with you. Not only are we changing up the music on this podcast, I mean, that's not very exciting, right? Most of you are going to be like, oh yeah, that's better. Anyway, where's the interview, right? That's coming up next episode. But um, I want you to become the leader others need you to be. So very soon, in just a couple of weeks, we are launching a brand new podcast called The Art of Leadership Daily. This show will be available Monday to Friday, It's a daily show. It features short clips from some of the best conversations I've had on this show with world-class leaders. I know there's 500 episodes, right? You're like, well, sometimes I go back into the archive. Well, what if you could get a daily dose, very short, 10 minutes or less? uh, And we are going to go right back into the archive. You will hear little clips from Andy Stanley, Simon Sinek, Uh, Nona Jones, Patrick Lencioni, Annie F. Downs, uh, Seth Godin, and everybody I've interviewed. It's hosted by Joe Terrell. Joe is the content manager on my team. He's an amazing thinker, and I'm very excited to have him at the host. And here's what you do. Just wherever you're listening to this podcast, take a minute and just look for The Art of Leadership Daily. Do a quick search. You can search my name, and it will show up. And then subscribe. And we launched that in the middle of June. So you got about a week to get in on it. Uh, we had a special contest happening over there too that you can uh, find out once you listen to the preview trailer. And I'm very excited to bring that to you. But that's a way of repackaging some of what we've done on this show in daily bites that will help you become the leader other people need you to be. And we're talking about your family. We're talking about your team, talking about your church, talking about your business, all of those things. But uh, a little Daily Bite from World Class Leaders with me and Joe Terrell. Anyway, that is the Art of Leadership Daily with your host, Joe Terrell, and me. And uh, you can find that anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.
0: You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast.